This episode of The Curbsiders is brought to you by Neff Madness. The 2018 tournament is starting on March 15th. You can register at ajkdblog.org. That's right, Neff Madness is back. There's 32 hot topics in nephrology with a scouting report written by experts in the field. You get eight hours of CME credit just for reading this scouting report. The topics will be judged by a blue ribbon panel of experts. It starts on March 15th. So sign up and make sure to list the curbsiders as your organization so that we can win some bragging rights for having the most people sign up for Neff Madness. And of course, join the conversation on social by using the hashtag Neff Madness on all your favorite social media platforms. If you still have questions about just what Neff Madness is, you can go to ajkdblog.org. They have a very nice two-minute video that kind of explains it probably better than I just have. Thank you and enjoy the show. Entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible to screw up. You should always do your own homework and let's know the world. Anybody have a pun ready for the show tonight? <laughs> no? Okay, I'll just start. Welcome back it. to the Curbsiders. Uh, Paul, uh, this is Dr. Matthew Watto. Paul, can you can you remind the audience uh, this what this show is about? Well, thanks so much for asking that. <laughs> this is an internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Yes, that is, that's what we're hoping to do. I think we succeeded tonight. With us, we have uh, two great correspondents. I'll let them introduce themselves. Ladies first. I'm Dr. Leah Witt. Returning correspondent, Dr. Leah Witt. Geriatrician and pulmonologist, Dr. Leah Witt. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> okay. Currently, currently geriatrics fellow at UCSF. Okay. Uh, Cyrus, are you still here? Oh, I sure am. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Cyrus Askin, uh, and I'm a little disappointed. I thought we were talking, uh, you know, beer selections or something. I guess it's uh, practice changing knowledge, huh? Yeah, Cyrus, uh, what what were you drinking tonight during the show? I I was keeping it non alcoholic tonight, but um, so this is a uh, Prairie uh, Artisan Ales. It is their uh, Prison Rodeo Hoppy Coffee Ale. So if you like. Uh, porters and you like ipas and you're just kind of having an identity crisis reach for this it's, it's delicious <laughs> i do not i do not like porters but uh thank you for the recommendation well you know it's we all can't be perfect okay so uh, why don't you t- why don't you tell us uh set up the episode for us cyrus sure absolutely um so uh copd uh, which we'll be talking about tonight is the third leading cause of death in the United States and fourth in the world. Uh, In countries with significant air pollution, such as from indoor solid fuel use, COPD causes an even higher burden of mortality. Uh, For example, in China, COPD is the second leading cause of death due to high rates of smoking and indoor air pollution. Because COPD is such a major cause of morbidity and mortality, we've decided to bring back Dr. Denisa Blagev, who you may remember from our previous episode on asthma. 
Uh, as you may recall, Dr. Blagev is a pulmonologist and intensivist who's now serving as the medical director for quality and specialty care for Intermountain Healthcare in Murray, Utah. She completed her bachelor's over at Yale, moved on to NYU for her MD, and then to Beth Israel for her residency in internal medicine. Following residency, she served as a clinical fellow at Harvard Medical School and then furthered her training at the University of California in San Francisco, where she completed a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine. As we may have mentioned during our last episode, uh, in addition to being a clinician and a teacher, she's also a blogger with a particular interest in physician wellness and exploring the important and expanding roles of women in medicine. So we are most excited to have her back and can't wait to talk about COPD with her. That's right. And Stuart sent me a text, something about huffing and puffing, (laughs) which uh, I, for Paul, for Paul's sake, I will not, I will not get into. So sorry, sorry, everyone. No pun tonight, (laughs) but uh, we'll get on to the conversation with Denitza Blagev, Dr. Denitza Blagev. I think this is a great point to start. Sure. Uh, So we're back with Dr. Denitza Blagev, and I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing the name right this time. Hi, Denitza. Hi. Uh, I'm not going to start off by asking you the normal question since we've had you on the show before, but do you want to remind the audience just a little bit about yourself? Um, So I graduated from Yale University in biomedical engineering, NYU Medical School, Beth Israel Deaconess for internal medicine uh, residency, and UCSF for pulmonary critical care fellowship, and I am now at Intermountain. And you have how many kids and uh, pets in that house? <laughs> no pets. I told my three boys that if they wanted a pet, we'd have to get rid of a kid, and they volunteered <laughs> one of their siblings. <laughs> we had the same <laughs> exact conversation with my boys. That, and my daughter's too young to ask for a pet. So, uh, yeah, I completely understand. That sounds reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Cyrus, Paul, did you did y'all want to ask her anything? Uh, let's see. Well, sure. I'll give it a stab. So, uh, of course, we did ask you a few questions last time, um, but there was something I was kind of thinking about, something I think is kind of interesting. Um, so what I'll ask is, given all the experience that you've accumulated throughout your career and just in life uh, in general, if you personally could go back in time to when you were a first year medical student, what advice would you give yourself? Um, it's hard to know because I would say I'm, I'm pretty happy with... Um, with where I'm at. So there's not something specific I would change, but I would say in general that um, the way medicine looks for medical students today is very different than the way it looked for me when I was a medical student. And it was even more different than the way it looked for people. So when, when you're in medical school and looking ahead at people that you might, uh, in whose uh, footsteps you might want to follow the pathway for you to get there would be very different. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that was helpful to me was actually having um, a teacher when I was a medical student who had burned out actually of pulmonary critical care by taking a job that he thought he would really like and really wasn't for him and ended up doing primary care at the VA. So um, throughout my training, I would sort of keep that in mind of picking things that I liked and medicine is pretty broad and you can have lots of different kinds of jobs, even within a specific specialty. So I think it's important to consider um you know, what that looks like for you. That's great. That's awesome. Thank you. We've, we've talked about that on the show before that there's, uh, I, we had with one of our guests, Paul and uh, our friend Gina and I were kind of debating whether or not people should do fellowships. And, 
And Gina's one, <laughs> Gina's point, killer. Gina's point, which I will bring up again. Paul calls her the fellowship killer, and I I think it's since she's my mentor, I'm following her footsteps. But I I feel for myself that not doing a fellowship, and I'm trying to do something else within medicine. There, it's an option that I didn't even know was on the table when I was a resident that I was trying to think of. So I think I think residents need to look far and wide and not just at like everybody else, like the 80% of their classmates that are going into fellowship because uh, they need to think what their, what their life and career is going to be like at the end of all that training. Um, So for some people, it's exactly where they want to be. So that's such a, I mean, I think I made this point on the show before too, but when we've done career nights for, for medical students and for early residents, and we just have a bunch of people from internal medicine and to a person, none of them is where they thought they would be when they started medical yeah. school. And also to a person, they're all insanely happy. So the person who thought they were going to be a cardiologist is now in public health and, and on and on and on. And right. the people in industry are thrilled. So it's just, you're, you'll get there. Um, and there's no one right path because it always, there's a bunch of left hand turns anyway. Yeah. So that's, I think it's such great advice. Yeah, and you don't you don't want to go back in time and change things if you're happy with where you are now either. So I agree. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> yeah, so you probably wouldn't want to give yourself uh, advice to to d- divert from the path that you took. But you got a whole butterfly situation going on here. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Pa- Paul, did you want to uh, ask anything? Uh, I get. Apparently, we skipped this one last time. I'm, I'm glad Cyrus is paying attention. Um, is there a book or a book that you like that you feel every doctor should read? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I really like uh, Atul Gawande's uh, writing. So I would say any book by him. Um, I've heard a lot of fabulous things about, um, is it Paul? Uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but uh, Kalanithi or the neurosurgeon oh, yeah, at yeah, Stanford. Uh-huh. Yeah, the who I haven't had. Yeah, I have not had the stomach to read that, but I've yeah. heard lots of amazing things about it. But I think... Uh, Atul Gawande's writing is incredible. Um, in general, I would say any book. I think uh, <laughs> one of the things that is lost in medicine, uh, sometimes I think when we're too busy with things, is sort of uh, literature and, and empathy. And I think literature is a good way of sort of reconnecting with that. I think I that, love it. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good, uh, a good segue into Picks of the Week. Uh, Cyrus, I'll let you, I'll let you start out. Sure. So uh, I guess for my pick of the week, uh, so some some people know, some people don't. I am a I guess a recreational powerlifter. Uh, it's something that is I've I've come into the last couple of years. I love it. It's like a huge stress reliever for me. Uh, have some very dear friends who are competitive and and are far stronger than I ever will be. <laughs> but that being said, um, one of the greatest tools I found in clinic is actually a book written by Andy Baker and John Sullivan called The Barbell Prescription, and it's um tra- it's called uh yeah The Barbell Prescription Strength Training for Life After Forty, um, and I find it to be a great primer for my patients who come into clinic and they're like, hey. You know, I used to do X, Y, and Z, and now I'm starting to notice that I'm getting weaker, that I'm having issues uh, carrying the bag of dog food into the house, things like that. And it is just such an approachable, um, comprehensive, and yet easy to read um, kind of um, text uh, that I've that I've been able to recommend to patients, and actually been able to get them under a barbell. Which it's it's pretty cool when you see like a 60 year old come back into your clinic who squatted for the first time and 
you know, feels great. Um, it's just, it's awesome. So that, that would be my recommendation, the barbell prescription. Nice recommendation, Cyrus. At first I, w- I thought you were going to be like, yeah, cause I'm over 40 and I was going to be like, Cyrus, I, d- I did not know that about you. <laughs> I've aged really well. Really okay. well. well, uh, me obviously not being a competitive power lifter, I'm going to make a super nerdy recommendation, which is, uh, something that I've discovered recently because, my time, uh, mostly because of the curbsiders, has been my time to read is not as much as I'd like between kind of reading with keep up with medicine and reading keep up with books. And the book recommendations had been coming in faster than I could get to them. So there's there's two sources that I just wanted to f- recommend. So first of all, my my community library has like free ebooks and free audiobooks. And I recently found that a good way for me to screen books to see if I want to read the full thing there, uh, at least my library has something called flash books. So basically they'll take a book like, um, seven habits for highly effective people. And it will, it will boil it down to a 20 minute audio summary. So you can kind of get the salient points. And then you can also decide if that's a book that you want to do more of like, uh, a thorough read through. So you can go through, I mean, in audiobooks, I mean, I can go through like five or six books a week doing that. And a lot of the listeners are always asking me for like, how do you read so many books? And, and what's, so this, this is a new thing that had not occurred to me. That is, uh, an easy way for you to do that. And I imagine Paul, this makes Paul nauseous because I, Paul, I'm sure Paul is reading cover to cover every book he picks up, but no, I think it's, I've been looking for a way to get rid of any kind of nuance or, um, content. <laughs> so I, I think it's, you know, a lot I of the times it. I just want to read the back of the book and that I felt like that was enough, but, but you read fiction a little bit more modern. Okay. Yeah. And in my defense, in my defense, this, these are nonfiction books and this uh-huh. is like something like, do I really need to read cover to cover, like some business book on leadership, uh, to, to find out that I didn't actually like it. So I think the 20 minute audio summary, and if it sounds good, then I can go back and read the full thing. Well, yeah, I mean, you were in the military, fake it till you make it, man. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So that's my pick of the week. Paul, what's, what's your pick of the week? Yeah, my, and again, decidedly non-medical because I think it's important to do stuff that's not medical. Um, pick of the week is going to be actually the TV show, The Good Place. I don't know if anyone's actually paying attention to it. It is, one of the best written comedies on television right now. It has a lot of insane talent in it. The people who are writing for it are comic writers like Joe Mandy and Megan Amram and Demi uh, Adigiebe. Like, there's a lot of really funny people. And it's basically about um, like people who die and find themselves in the afterlife and sort of their quest to find their moral center and kind of cope with their situation. I'm being intentionally vague because I don't want to get away <laughs> any of the twists and turns. It is hilariously written. Ted Danson deserves all the acting awards for it. He's amazing in it. And then there's... a one of my favorite, I still laugh at this every time I think about it. There's a line, it's a throwaway that in hell, demons wear Axe body spray that smells like Michael Bay movies. And it just, so like if that joke does it for you, it, it, then you'll enjoy the show. If it doesn't, then you can probably take a pass, but it's, it's, it's fantastic. And I can't recommend it highly enough. So it's the good place, which is, I think available streaming the first season and on NBC whenever it comes back. That is so funny because like an hour ago, someone mentioned that for the first time to me. I'd never heard of it. And they were raving about it. And so I guess I'll just have to watch yeah. it. Yeah, it's yeah. I don't I don't know how many people are watching, and I keep getting surprised every time it comes back. But yeah, please watch it before they take it off the air. <laughs> Too easy. <laughs> Denitza, did you want to give a pick of the week? I'm I'm in Salt Lake, and the Winter Olympics are going. So my <laughs> pick of the week would be <laughs> skiing. Okay. <laughs> so solid pick. Uh, a pitch for some outdoor time in the winter. <laughs> All right, perfect. <laughs> 
So with that, uh, Cyrus, how do you want to start this off? Let's let's move into the t- the main topic here, which is COPD. Absolutely. So I guess we'll just, as we often do, start out with a case uh, from Cashlack Memorial. So um, here we've got uh, Mr. T, who's a 64-year-old man with a history of coronary artery disease, um, BPH, and urinary incontinence, who's rolling into the pulmonary clinic as a referral from his primary care doctor with some shortness of breath. Uh, so he says he's had cough with mucus production for the last few years. Uh, it does worsen periodically during the course of the year. He thinks it's just a cold. Um, he's currently smoking, but he is cutting back. Um, and then he also mentions that he's been hospitalized for asthma several times in the last year and treated with antibiotics. Uh, when he asks a little, a little more history, he says he's smoked two packs a day for 40 years uh, and says he's able to walk about two blocks or so before becoming short of breath. Short, uh, short of breath. Um, and he, uh, you bring him back, you, you test his, uh, oxygen sat and it's about 93%. Um, and the, the only medication he says he's on is an albuterol inhaler that he uses occasionally. Uh, so that's our patient. And I guess the first question would be, what are your initial thoughts about Mr. T here and what, uh, what would be on your differential? So whenever I see someone like this, I have really two things in my head. One is, um, does this person have COPD? And then we can go kind of down the algorithm of what kinds of things we would consider and and what we might do for him. And then the other one is, um, you know, is it really COPD? Does he have other things? So for someone like this with 80 pack years smoking, um, with pretty typical symptoms of sort of essentially chronic bronchitis, which would be a clinical diagnosis, his pre-test probability for having COPD is quite high. So you've mentioned some of the typical things. So um, cough, shortness of breath, um, exacerbations um, triggered by your eyes, and then does he improve with inhalers? Um, as a first pass, the pretest probability is pretty high. Uh, and then to confirm the diagnosis, um, really you would need spirometry. Um, But I will caution that um, pulmonary function testing is not um, really pathognomonic. So in other words, if someone has, so if he were a non-smoker with that same history, um, I would not be thinking COPD. I might be thinking bronchiectasis, which can also have chronic obstruction and a productive cough, or I might be thinking asthma with ABPA or, um, you know, or chronic aspiration. Um, so the differential can really expand. Um, so spirometry is a helpful confirmatory test. Um, but if someone's a non-smoker and they have chronic obstruction on PFTs, that doesn't mean they necessarily have COPD. Excellent. Excellent. And, and I've seen recently some articles within the past year about patients there's for patients with mild symptoms, there's a lot of misdiagnosis. Is that something that we need to be watching out for as primary care providers? Yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of a tricky area. So I think in COPD and probably common diseases in general, you have a lot of misdiagnosis in both directions. So there are plenty of studies that's that show that when people are diagnosed for the first time with COPD, if you go back and ask them or you look at their history, they've had respiratory symptoms for years prior, right? And and that makes complete sense because, you know, it's not an acute onset disease. It's something that develops. Um, on the flip side, COPD is such a common problem that uh, if, if you have someone over 40 who comes in complaining of cough or shortness of breath, they will often get that label of COPD, often even when they're lifelong non-smokers and not really get the full differential or consideration they deserve. So I think it's the kind of thing where you really have to think through if the symptoms are typical, 
try to get some confirmatory testing. Um, and then the other big flag for me in general with, uh, in medicine is if some, if I've diagnosed someone with a disease and I'm treating them for that disease and they are not improving, then I rethink my diagnosis, right? Like I don't just escalate down the algorithm, but those would be the people where I'd say, well, you know, I thought it sounded like a classic story, but maybe there's something else going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe another word just for spirometry. So typically, right, so COPD by definition requires obstruction. And what that means is obstruction that doesn't go away. So they never have perfectly normal PFTs, even when they're not in an exacerbation. Um, But actually, um, you know, there's sort of gold stage zero for COPD or uh, smokers with preserved lung function. So there was an article in uh, the New England Journal in May of 2016, um, you know, prospective uh, study, carefully collected patients where they had spirometry, spirometry was normal, but they had symptoms. So cough, um, you know, shortness of breath, those people were having a pretty similar exacerbation rate however you quantified mm-hmm. that exacerbation uh, as, um, you know, people with symptoms and obstruction, sort of your classic COPD. So I think um, the other caution is if someone has spirometry that's not abnormal and yet they have 80-pack years in the typical story, you know, are you going to call them gold uh, stage zero COPD? I, I think they deserve sort of a second thought on whether you're missing something else, um, but they could still fit into that. Um, category. We are going to want to go through a little bit the spirometry and the staging. Paul, what was your what was your question? I guess before we get into that, because I know we want to deal with sort of more of the typical workup, but I I often wonder what to do with the opposite patient. I don't know how everybody else's experience is, but I've had plenty of times where I'll have the patient with a fairly significant smoking history that for whatever reason, chest imaging was done that showed emphysematous changes, but they report no symptoms. They feel perfectly fine. How hard should I chase after a diagnosis in the patient who phenotypically is not really <laughs> who from a radiographic standpoint, looks like they have COPD, but for all their intents and purposes, feels great is walking upstairs and just marching down city blocks without a problem. Like how aggressive do you work up a diagnosis in that case? Um, I think you have the diagnosis. So I think um, we can think of COPD, emphysema, and chronic bronchitis, and even sort of asthma as overlapping. Um, But really, so emphysema is a radiographic and pathologic diagnosis. You have a CT that shows emphysema, they have emphysema. You don't need any clinical correlation. You don't need PFTs. They don't have any symptoms. They have emphysema, right? You get a lung biopsy and you see emphysema, they have it. You have the diagnosis, you can start questioning what do I do with that? Is that someone I treat? Can I really improve them, right? Is there anything for reducing mortality in someone with emphysema? Um, you know, the, that might be the person I would push on exacerbations and really dig for exacerbations and functional capacity if they're not short of breath, but all they do is sit on the couch all day because they're quote unquote too tired or quote lazy right. to do anything, then I might push them. But, um, you know, they have emphysema. You can work on mortality. And if they don't have symptoms or exacerbations, you know, most of the medications we're talking about would be targeting those. So then maybe they just get PR and albuterol and, and, you know, tobacco cessation and uh, that barbell uh, book to try and be out. Chronic bronchitis is a clinical diagnosis, right? So um, they have chronic productive cough over at least three months, over at least two years. 
That is a minority of patients. If I have someone like that, I think extra hard on them about uh, both pseudomonas, um, uh, which can happen with COPD as an infection, and also bronchiectasis, and kind of really try to think through that. Um, If you have emphysema and chronic bronchitis that also have chronic obstruction on spirometry, that is your COPD. Okay. (laughs) So... um, you know, we sort of use these terms terms interchangeably, and patients are confused, and doctors are confused. Um, and you know, sometimes I'll have someone that has lots of emphysema; they have a severe DLC reduction, they have normal spirometry, and then I dance around a hundred ways explaining how it's really quote unquote. I mean, it is emphysema, and like I don't, you know, we're treating right. them. I I think so. Is it? <laughs> Can we simplify it and just say, just tell patients they have COPD? Well, that's what I do, right? Okay. But then in my notes, when I say normal yeah. spirometry and DLCO reduction, I go on for a sentence to explain <laughs> to every other person who's going to look see. at that and say, well, I thought spirometry had to be abnormal. Okay. Right? But in the end, it doesn't affect the therapy. And so I sort of do that dance to I see. clarify that I understand spirometry is normal, <laughs> but they have emphysema. <laughs> Uh, and then treat them for quote unquote COPD. When you tell the patient, so let's say we see this guy, we have our impression clinically what this is. Uh, We haven't done uh, spirometry or other PFTs yet. So how, how would you counsel the patient? Like, what does that conversation sound like when you're telling somebody you have shortness of breath and I think this is the cause? Um, so in this patient, I would say, I think this is probably a COPD and this would be someone where I would get spirometry, but, um, to sort of confirm the diagnosis, but in my mind, I'm making a list of, okay, what, what problems does he have that I'm trying to address? Right. So but I mean, like, uh, how would, how would you explain it to the, him so that he understands? Cause he doesn't know what COPD is. Let's say that. Oh, I see. So like, how do you explain to him? How do you explain to a patient? What is COPD? Cause to them, like I say that to some patients and they've never heard of it unless they have a family member that had it and they saw sort of what that looks like. Right. So one is I'll use both terms, COPD and emphysema. Sometimes they've heard one term and not the other, and they don't get the extensive explanation that that I just gave about the difference. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, and two, you know, I'll sort of say, well, you know, due to chronic cigarette use, you know, chronic tobacco use in the first world, um, smoke and, and biofuel exposure in the third world, but chronic smoke exposure in the lungs and the airways, and it causes lung inflammation and lung destruction. So if they are a chronic bronchitis phenotype where they have the chronic productive cough, um, that would be sort of the inflammation and the mucus production is part of the disease. Uh, and if they're not coughing up a bunch of stuff, then I might, um, sort of focus on destruction of the lung and, um, not in these words, but impaired ability to exchange oxygen. Now that we've explained to the patient, what's the next step going to be here in just kind of sealing the diagnosis? And, And I think we should talk about, uh, pulmonary function testing, unless you guys think I'm missing something else that's a more logical next step. I think the guidelines say you do spirometry next. Um, <laughs> you just sound so tired about that. <laughs> I, I mean, because I just explained to you that even if spirometry is normal in this guy, I'm still going to call him yeah. COPD right. or emphysema. Sure. And um, and so that part is tricky. Like as a pulmonologist, I don't have that problem because 
you know, people come, the PFT lab is right there and I can get not only spirometry, but I get DLCO so I can have, you know, the emphysema, but guidelines are spirometry and you do spirometry following bronch. And if they're obstructed on the pre-bronchodilator trial, you give them bronchodilator and then you repeat spirometry. And with that, what do you expect to see? So in someone with COPD, you should see obstruction before and after bronchodilator, and that helps grade. Um, so the FEV1% predicted helps to grade the degree of obstruction. Um, part of the reason I'm not that excited about it, uh, which again is not guidelines say you get it, is because the current guidelines, right, there's an increased recognition of actually your overall outcome, your tendency to be hospitalized, your mortality are really driven much more by symptoms and exacerbation frequency. And so even in the latest gold guidelines, uh, your FEV 1% predicted, you know, sort of may be buried in there, but not really prominent. And and that used to be the main way that we would stage COPD. Um, so I think you do it, you make that helps to cement that you have the right diagnosis and you're not dealing with something else. Um, but, well, but then there's also clinical judgment. Maybe it would help to go through what, what the, what we're going to see in primary care when we get the PFT report back, because it'll give you what it, it gives you the values that I, that I pay attention to that I've been taught to pay attention to are the, the FVC, the FEV one, and then the ratio and they give you an actual, a predicted, and a percent predicted, uh, both pre and post bronchodilator, right? Yeah. So let's say um, this for for the patient that we were just talking about, if his PFT showed an FVC uh, percent predicted of fifty three and an FEV one of thirty percent predicted, and then the ratio is um, now, for the ratio, do you want the actual or the predicted? Yeah, the, okay. nope, the actual number. So the actual ratio is 40. Okay. So the first thing I do when I look at spirometry is actually look at the curve. Mm-hmm. And that makes sure that I don't miss the forest for the trees. So okay. if I look at a curve like that, uh, my guess is I'm going to see that it's curvilinear. And in my head, I'm thinking anything with a ratio under 70 should look curvilinear to me. Uh, and then I sort of try to, if I'm debating whether it's curvilinear or not, I'm going to expect for there to be maybe mild obstruction if there is some. Um, if it's severe obstruction, it almost looks like a peak that goes straight down mm-hmm. uh, and it's really obvious. And then moderate is somewhere in between. So eyeballing it, if if someone's coming in with that history and those symptoms and I see severe obstruction, I feel like I'm on the right track. If I'm debating whether it looks curvilinear or not, I'm going to feel like I'm going to need to explore more. But with a ratio of 44, it probably looks like it's moderately obstructed. The next thing I look at is the ratio. So if the ratio is under 70, and in this case it's 44, um, or under sort of the ATS uh, predicted ratio for that patient's age, sex, and ethnicity, and height, um, then that confirms the obstruction. And then you grade the degree of, of obstruction based on the FEV1% predicted. So in this case, you said it was 33% predicted. Um, so that would be very severe obstruction. Mm-hmm. The next thing I look at is the FVC, so the forced vital capacity. The forced vital capacity, if it is normal, I'm done. I feel like this is someone with severe obstruction, normal vital capacity, that is 
you know, solid. In this case, you said the FVC is 55% predicted, and that's kind of low. Um, and what that suggests, if you have a low FVC and a low FEV1, you might have restriction mm -hmm. in addition to the obstruction, or this is someone that has so much air trapping uh, that, you know, they didn't exhale the 30 seconds it takes them to empty out their lungs. So their vital capacity is low because of their severe emphysema. Mm. And the reason I stepped through it this way is because if I looked at the curve at the get-go and it looked like severe obstruction with just looking at the curve, then my probability of thinking I have restriction as well is very low. But if I looked at the curve and I thought it's maybe a little bit curvilinear, and then I'm reading off that it's very severe, then I would think that there's higher probability of having concomitant restriction. Mm -hmm. So this curve, this curve is, it goes straight up and then comes straight, straight down, um, kind of like you were describing for severe obstruction. And yeah. so just to recap for the audience, the FEV1 to FVC, you look at the actual value there that they're reporting. Yeah. And then for the FEV1, you look at the percent predicted. And same thing for the FVC, you look at the percent predicted. Okay. Correct. And so the, a low ratio defines the presence of obstruction. You grade the degree of obstruction by the FEV1 percent predicted. If your FVC is low, you cannot either diagnose or rule out restriction by spirometry. And so that might be someone you need to consider um, further evaluation for. Okay. And I think, I think just to clarify for our listeners, there might've been some transposing of numbers, not that it's going to make any big difference, but uh, for this patient, what we had was a, a predicted percentage uh, or a percent predicted of FEC of 53 and a percent predicted for FEV one of uh, 30. Again, I don't think it's going to oh, make okay, a big, sorry. I don't think it's going to make a big difference no. obviously, but just so sorry. people don't get confused. Now, when we, when people say PFTs, I feel like there is some sort of like, uh, nitpicking to be done here with like the nomenclature. What, what is it, what comes, if I order a full set of PFTs, what does that mean to a pulmonologist? Because sometimes you'll order them and you'll get back just spirometry, but there's other things that come along too. So how should we order those to make sure we get what we need for these tests? So, um, most places will have a protocol that what does a full set of PFTs mean in that lab? Um, but as a basic full set of PFTs, what you would be talking about is spirometry, plus or minus bronchodilator. If they're obstructed, they would get a bronchodilator. In some places, they might give it even if they're not obstructed. That tends to not be very valuable. DLCO, so diffusing capacity. And then total lung capacity by body plethysmography or body box would be the one that may come with a full set of PFTs. But I think most labs will have a protocol where you order PFTs per protocol and what that entails for that lab. Okay. So it's not going to be, not going to be universal. If you tell me full set of PFTs, and if you tell another hospital full set of PFTs, you will probably get different things, which okay. is why when you order full sets of PFTs, you get different things. I got you. Okay. I think I can say firsthand, I have experienced that. <laughs> now, the D would you recommend that we also check the DLCO with most patients when we're sending spirometry? spirometry? Um, so the guidelines recommend spirometry, definitely, mm -hmm. and bronchodilator response after. Um, 
I think it depends on your pretest probability. If it is someone um, like this patient, I think you could do spirometry. That's pretty cheap and easy and more readily available than the DLCO or the TLC pleth. Um, but if it is someone that has um, normal spirometry, where I still think they might have emphysema, that would definitely be someone I would check a DLCO on. Okay. Um, so I, I hesitate to to say everyone, you know, in a primary care setting should be ordering a DLCO on everyone. The guidelines certainly don't say that. I think there is a role for it, but um, I think spirometry is uh, the diagnostic test. And the last question I have is, how are you going to use the information you get? Let's say the person does have a significant uh, post-bronchodilator response. First of all, what would you consider significant? And then second of all, what are we going to do with that information? How is that going to change the diagnosis or treatment? So good question. So bronchodilator response, uh, what's significant is actually very specific, and those are ATS guidelines. So it's uh, increase in 12% and 200 milliliters in either the FEV1 or the FVC. So your PFT lab will read that as significant or not, and it's specific. What do I do with the information? If somebody has, like this patient, if they had a significant bronchodilator response, and I, you know, they had the 80 pack years active tobacco use, then what I would think is, you know, that tells me that if this guy stopped smoking and I could give him inhalers and I repeated spirometry in three months, he should have just the post-bronchodilator values pre-bronchodilator and have no bronchodilator response. Hmm. Does that make sense? So in other words, it gives me a target for how much better they can be if I treat them optimally. Okay. Um, is there, and and we talked about, you, you mentioned the asthma overlap thing. Does, does it, does it suggest there might be a component of like reactive airways, like asthma as well? Uh, not just bronchodilator response. So I think, um, when people say chronic or irreversible obstruction for COPD, it doesn't mean that you don't have a bronchodilator response. It really means that your PFTs are never normal. So you could be on 40 of prednisone for a week and your PFTs are still obstructed. Mm -hmm. They're better than they were, but they're still obstructed. And so, um, and we know that COPD patients have changes in lung function, right? Because they exacerbate. So they go up and down. You give them bronchodilators, they feel better, right? Um, So they can have some bronchodilator response. If someone has like a 50% bronchodilator response, I might think about the asthma overlap. Um, But I also think about the asthma overlap in COPD patients that might have peripheral eosinophilia or um, if their triggers are, you know, cats, dogs, seasonal, more allergic type things, um, then that might be another sort of clinical component that makes me think about COPD asthma overlap. Okay. Yeah. That, the reason I was pushing on that one, it just, that was one of the questions we had on Twitter uh, from one of our listeners whose name I may or may not be able to quickly bring up. Yeah, it was, he sent us, he sent us a bunch of questions. So I feel like we should definitely. Oh, uh, I think this it's is Ahmed Nahas. At, at J Sebastian ZM on Twitter uh, asked us, asthma COPD overlap, how do we approach these patients? Yeah, I think um, to some degree, right, um, there's still a lot of questions about what exactly is the asthma COPD overlap syndrome. And I think that's evolving. But the therapy for asthma and the therapy for COPD, especially when there's severe overlaps significantly, right? Uh, and so 
And I think even early on, things like trigger avoidance, um, which if it's asthma, you're going to have a different set of triggers that you're discussing than if it's, you know, just COPD or if it's COPD and asthma, um, you know, a lot of the inhalers are basically the same in someone with COPD asthma overlap. You might think about Montelukast or, or some of those other medications. Um, and even we'll probably get to it, but the chronic azithromycin, right? So, uh, chronic azithromycin is, um, long-standing sort of therapy to reduce COPD exacerbations in COPD patients. Well, in the last year, there was a study showing that chronic azithromycin reduces exacerbation frequency in asthma patients. Doesn't do a thing for them for an acute exacerbation. Um, and so, you know, at the end stage of like teasing this apart of, do I call you this or do I call you that? I think you identify triggers, you identify symptoms, you identify exacerbations, and then you try to target those things. Okay. So let's say we've, we've confirmed the diagnosis of COPD before we get too, too far off the grid. Um, yeah. Could you talk me through uh, staging a little bit? It's one of those things I feel like I have to look up every time or if a resident's precepting with me, I kind of glaze over as soon as they say gold stage and I just don't <laughs> hear the rest. I think yes. in part because I just don't understand it well. Could you maybe talk me through what you're doing with these numbers and, and then maybe we can get into how they impact you or treat the patient? So I also don't like the alphabet soup, and I also <laughs> glaze over. Um, so um, really what you're trying to figure out, so you get spirometry, and the FEV1% predicted gives you kind of a grading of obstruction. But to put them in your ABCD grid of gold criteria, really what you're going to look at is symptoms and exacerbation frequency. And, uh, you know, everybody knows it's better to have no symptoms and no exacerbations than to have lots of symptoms and lots of exacerbations. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, A is the best and D is the worst. Uh, and B and C, you have one of each, right? So you either have symptoms and no exacerbations or exacerbations and no symptoms. And those B and D are confusing and hard to keep straight because it's not actually clear um, even how they correlate. So there are some studies where B, uh, where, let's see, I can't even keep them straight, where um, if you have lots of symptoms and no exacerbations, you have a higher mortality than if you have exacerbations and no symptoms. And there's other cohorts where they flip around. Um, oh. And part of that is people say, well, you know, maybe these are people that have cardiovascular disease, right? So you have uh, 80 pack years of smoking that shares a risk factor. You have some diastolic dysfunction or some heart failure or coronary artery disease. Uh, and that might drive your mortality and shortness of breath um, and dyspnea. So I think for those B's and D's, I try to figure out, do you have symptoms? Do you have exacerbations? And then what therapies am I targeting towards those? For the FEV1, um, you know, there's some risk stratifications. It's far from perfect, but so the Bode index would be um, um, the BMI. So it's really cachexia there that counts against you. The grade of obstruction, so more obstruction is bad. Uh, the dyspnea, um, um, you know, sort of like a symptom score. Uh, and then the six minute walk distance uh, exercise tolerance. Um, and that can risk stratify over five years, but not perfect. For these, for these patients, the, one that we t the ones that we tend to see in the hospital, if we're talking to them about prognosis, let's say this guy, Mr. T, he has a gold 3D. Uh, what does that mean for his mortality? Is it, is it pretty high? I've heard that for these patients... 
the mortality is quite high, higher than probably they realize or a lot of clinicians realize. Yeah, I, I think if you are, um, and I mean, you hear how clunky it is, right? Like gold, so it's gold stage is the spirometry grading and gold group is the ABCD. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, so lots of symptoms and frequent exacerbations and severe obstruction uh, have high mortality and certainly a lot higher mortality than um, fewer symptoms or no symptoms and no obstruction uh, and no exacerbations. Um you know, I, th- I think uh, there's a role for a sort of goals of care and palliative care discussions for all of these people. Uh, and I don't think it's unreasonable to have that discussion when you're meeting them and you're their sentinel event, their initial diagnosis. Um, you know, because again, like if this man, uh, you know, 80 pack years and what was he, 72 or something like that, um, you know, like his mortality, even though this is the first he's getting diagnosed with, um, he's actually frequent exacerbations, lots of symptoms, and it's worth thinking through whether intubation or, um, you know, what kinds of things he would be uh, thinking about that might be in his future. So it's actually very important or very appropriate at that time to have those end-of-life discussions if uh, their picture is, is that grim. Yeah, and it's you know, it's easier said than done because it's sort of like a cancer diagnosis. Someone says cancer and like, you can talk for two hours after that and there's nothing else that they hear. And depending on the situation, you might say emphysema and they're having PTSD of, you know, when they took care of their mother who was dying of emphysema. Um, so I think, you know, using judgment and relationships, but, but yeah, it is a high mortality. Well, because of because of interest of time, I think we should definitely start to hit on some of the medication. So how are we going to treat this gentleman? What are we going to do as first line? And can you talk us about how you sort of step through step through therapy with patients when you're you're first starting out? Yes. So the first thing I think of is do they have COPD or not? And if they have COPD, then the first things I want to look at is what do I have that, to offer that reduces mortality? Um, the thing that reduces mortality for this gentleman is tobacco cessation, mm-hmm. uh, and that prevents progression. So that's where I'm going to spend my energy on, you know, uh, to begin with. Uh, other things that reduce mortality would be oxygen. So chronic oxygen, if you need it and you're chronically hypoxic, uh, the lot trial in the last five years showed that if you're normal saturation at rest, but you only drop with exertion or with sleep, you actually don't improve mortality or reduce exacerbations if you give people oxygen. So in this man, we would say, well, is he hypoxic? He's 93% on room air. And I would say, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because he's an active smoker and my peripheral pulse oximeter doesn't distinguish between carboxyhemoglobin and oxyhemoglobin. And so for these people, I'll actually get an ABG. Um, One reason for that is because it sort of gives me an assessment of their hypoxemia. And I also use it as a tobacco cessation tool to say, hey, you keep coming to the doctor. We keep telling you your SATs are fine in the 90s, but they're actually not fine. Every time you pick up a cigarette, you have carbon monoxide poisoning. The other reason to get an ABG would be especially with severe obstruction, is they can have chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure. So for people that have a PCO2 that's greater than 52, not in an acute exacerbation, just coming to your clinic, um, if they have a PCO2 that's 52 or greater, those are the people that can have reduced mortality and reduced exacerbation frequency with non-invasive ventilation. So I assess for that. 
Pulmonary rehab has some, um, you know, their mortality data is not as robust, but I, um, but certainly their exacerbation frequency and uh, and health status data is pretty good. So I always think through that and and try to offer it. Can Once I, I get yes. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Just before we move on, the oxygen thing. Patients, I have I've had patients. Some say they wear it all the time. Some patients say they just wear it as needed, and some patients say they wear it overnight. Let's assume they need it. They qualify by either an ABG or they're hypoxic on the pulse oximeter they're not, if they're a non-smoker. If they qualify for oxygen based on just being hypoxic at rest, do they need to wear the oxygen continuously 24-7 to get the mortality benefit? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just, I wasn't sure because so many, yeah. I've actually seen some patients come in who come in and they'll say, no, my pulmonologist tells me I just have to wear it whenever I feel like it. And I was like, I remember learning that that's not going to help your mortality, but maybe that's what they've negotiated. And I know every case yeah. is case by case. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, I certainly have lots of patients who are hypoxic who say, I'm never going to wear this. Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, I focus on tobacco cessation, but so those are the things I have to offer that have to sure. do with mortality, right? The next thing is inhalers. And once I hit the inhalers, there's no mortality benefit to any of them, right? So then it's like, well, why am I giving you these medications? And what I'm really going to target is exacerbation frequency and symptoms. Um, and this is where, Paul, with your patient with emphysema who doesn't have exacerbations and doesn't have symptoms, they don't need an inhaler. You know, like maybe they get a PRN albuterol in case they get a cold and maybe I dig around for exacerbations. Uh, but basically, they don't need therapy. The therapy isn't going to change things for them. Um, so first line for COPD, um, I would say you can do almost anything you want. You can get whatever <laughs> they can get that their insurance will cover. These inhalers are about $300 a month uh, indefinitely, right? And so 99% of the energy spent on inhalers is figuring out what they can get, how they can get it. And often, whatever you prescribe, they're not taking as often as you prescribe because it's $300 or $150 uh, an inhaler and they're saving it for when they're really sick. Um, that being said, first line for COPD would be anything like a long-acting antimuscarinic, so teotropium. There's good data on that. Um, you could even do long-acting beta agonist. Um, so Long-acting antimuscarinic, so teotropium, outperforms just the long-acting beta agonist by itself, something like salmeterol. Alaba, Lama, so the combination of two drugs outperforms slightly, um, you know, just one alone. Uh, but there's data even on inhaled steroids and long-acting beta agonist combination. Uh, and you could do triple therapy for COPD. The only thing you should not do for COPD is inhaled steroids alone. Okay. Um, and that's the opposite of asthma, where you could do anything for asthma. So the first line, those inhaled steroids, and then you can add things on and end up on triple therapy for asthma. The only thing you should not do in asthma is a long-acting beta agonist. And this is the reason that I'm not knocking myself over to figure out, is, am I going to call it asthma? Am I going to call it um, or, I mean, I care about asthma alone, but I care, like, is it COPD or is it COPD asthma overlap? Well, you know, if they're going to end up on three inhalers, they end up on the three inhalers that are the same. So I care more about, do they have enough symptoms and what symptoms am I targeting? So I think part of what you were just discussing, as I recall, 
um, goes back to like the, the 2016 flame trial in the New England Journal where they, I think they compared uh, Laba and ICS versus Llama and Laba. And I think they found that the Llama and Laba, correct me if I'm wrong, I think correct. the Llama and Laba, they had fewer exacerbations with that. Correct. And the, but that's true. And the magnitude is so small. Like the magnitude of the differences are really tiny. That's yeah, um, good to remember. Which is why. And then there's studies actually, people that are on LABA ICS, COPD patients on LABA ICS, you peel away the ICS, so no inhaled steroid, they're no worse for the wear. So do they really need that inhaled steroid? Uh, and then there's a suggestion in some of the trials that inhaled steroids might be associated with um, higher risk of pneumonia in patients with COPD. Uh, and so if they're not, but they reduce exacerbation frequency. So if it's not a frequent exacerbator, I really shy away from the inhaled steroids. Denise, and where are we with azithromycin? So at one point there was raging enthusiasm for it and everyone got <laughs> reduced exacerbations and then there was the fatal arrhythmias and they were doing it three times a week. Like where, what's the, the party line at these days? Yeah, I mean, I think those data, I think both of those concerns still stand. So if you are going to do chronic azithromycin, you do want to get an EKG, make sure their QTC is not prolonged. They do need kind of the audiology follow-up uh, to make sure we're not... Uh, contributing to their hearing loss. Uh, and I think if, if you have someone who's really exacerbating a lot, you can give them chronic azithromycin to reduce it. Um, your other option, once you hit uh, that, would be reflumolast. Um, so um, that is often more expensive. Um, and, um, you know, people can have some GI upset, uh, but that would be an alternative. There are no, uh, I think there's an ongoing study looking at the combination of the two, but as of right now, we have no data on combining those. So you could pick one or the other, depending on, uh, on their other risk factors. What are we targeting as endpoints when we're using the inhalers? Like what, what can we tell the patients these are going to prevent? You mentioned exacerbation frequency will go down. Do any of these, well, I'm assuming none of these have a mortality benefit because you didn't Correct. list it there. How about uh, other, other endpoints that we can point to? Like this is why you should take these for the patient. So symptoms and exacerbation frequency. Okay. And I set the goal when I decide to treat therapy. So if someone tells me they have no symptoms and I push them and I say, you know, when you, um, you know, we have air pollution here, when you, you know, when it's bad air pollution, do you have symptoms? When you get a cold, does it last all winter? Um, I don't know if someone's cooking and there's smoke or chemical fumes or, you know, your cleaning sprays, do those trigger you? And if they're saying no, no, no to all of that, then I'm not sure that they're going to feel a symptomatic difference with the inhaler. Um, if they're exacerbating frequently, then I'll tell them like, this is why you're taking this inhaler is you take it every day so that, you know, when you get a cold, the chance of you having to come to the hospital because of that is much lower. Um, and then the other thing I think through with them is an action plan for COPD. So if it's someone who exacerbates frequently, um, what do I want them to do uh, for an exacerbation? So for some patients, I might want them to have prednisone on hand um, that I can give them a burst. They can start self-treating. Uh, for other patients, you know, I might think through their volume status and do, um, you know, prednisone and an antibiotic. And sometimes they need, uh, you know, their mods teaching and a little bit of Lasix. So um, you really want to think through what you're treating. But I, I do try to, especially if it's someone who exacerbates where this happens every winter, what do they do that's not going to the ED? Which 
which short acting agents should they be using um, during, does it matter? Do you, do you give all patients uh, short acting ipratropium and albuterol or just one or the other for uh, COPD? I give them all albuterol. Mm-hmm. Um, I use ipratropium, so not ipratropium, but I use the long acting antimuscarinic. So something like teotropium mm-hmm. as my first line. Um, and your patient here had BPH, which is very common in this age group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the anticholinergics have the side effect of dry mouth and urinary retention. Right. And so unless, you know, it's someone that I'm desperate and I sort of will have nebs and inhalers and, and have them on the long acting anticholinergic. Um, usually I really try to limit having an excess of anticholinergics on. Okay. You would, so you wouldn't necessarily avoid the llama, the long acting muscarinic in that this gentleman, but you wouldn't add on top of it, the short acting yes. anti-muscarinic yes. ipratropium. Yeah. Okay. And I, and I might warn them, like, I think you said BPH with urinary incontinence. So I don't know if it's overflow incontinence, but usually, you, you know, like if they have hesitancy, like I'll warn them to watch for that side effect and sort of, if it's getting worse, then they should stop that. And, you know, we might try just the lava. Okay. I think we should move into talking about exacerbations because we're, we're kind of nearing the end of your time here. Um, Perfect. so, so we just talked about the short acting bronchodilators and a question that the residents always ask me just to jump into the treatment of acute exacerbations, patients on teotropium, now they're coming into the hospital and we're giving them albuterol and short acting ipratropium. Should we just stop the teotropium? Let's say take out take BPH out of the situation. Right. Like they always ask me basically for their maintenance inhalers, the llama, the lava, the ICS, the inhaled steroid. Do we do we keep all those going, or do we just give them the short acting agents and the and the systemic steroids in the hospital and restart the inhalers when they leave, or or the exacerbations better? Oh, <laughs> it's, and maybe the answer uh, is that's not well, that's just like no, the no, art no, of medicine. I don't know. <laughs> they're, they're, no, no. I think they're, those are good questions. So I think there's several factors. If someone is so short of breath that they're not moving any air, um, you know, all of those different inhalers have sort of metrics about how much flow you have to generate to get the inhaler, you know, to get the medication into the lung rather than just spraying the back of your throat and, if you're in an exacerbation, you may or may not be able to do that. So you could try to make that kind of assessment. If someone's on BiPAP, you are absolutely not giving them any kind of maintenance inhaler, right? Um, if people can mostly manage to take their maintenance inhalers, um, I would tend to keep them on because this provides you a teachable moment. So often people are prescribed something, they get handed it in the pharmacy and nobody knows how to use it. And if you're in the hospital with a COPD exacerbation and you're taking that inhaler in the hospital, this is an opportunity for the hospital RTs or nurses um, or other healthcare providers to help teach you and reinforce how to take it and when to take it. The caveat to that is that inhalers are ridiculously expensive. So most hospitals have a formulary. And if you decide to put someone on a controller, you're often not putting them on whatever they came on. You're putting them on something very different. Um, You know, and so that teachable thing is sort of not really a benefit there. Um, And then the key to me is to remember... um, to figure out a system for how do you resume their controller back uh, when they're discharged. And I think that's something that we too often fail to do because of all these other issues that come up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a big problem, but I, I think that's good for for people who are on rounds. If you're if you're a resident or an attending, you should you should if the patient has the inhalers at the bedside, you should assess and and do that as like on team on teaching rounds. I think it's a great thing to do because uh, some of the some of the students probably don't know how to use the inhalers, and maybe even some of the more junior residents. So that's that's great. The other big ticket item here. Antibiotics. We had a bunch of questions uh, from Jay Sebastian and other people. How do you determine who needs antibiotics? What antibiotics do you choose? It, it seems kind of like a little bit subjective. They talk about sputum, yeah. and so how do you decide who you're going to give antibiotics to? Um. So, uh, yeah. So if you have purulent sputum, change in sputum, uh, so increased cough, uh, increased uh, purulence. Um, that I'll tend to give them. There are studies actually looking at for acute exacerbations. So for acute exacerbations, you could, if you give prednisone plus or minus doxycycline, didn't make a big difference. Um, That being said, the antibiotics you would use for an acute exacerbation of COPD are kind of doxycycline and azithromycin. So if they're already on chronic azithro, I don't you know, I might give them doxycycline or, or just give them the steroids and keep the chronic as a throw. Um, you could kind of do what you want. I think if it's a severe exacerbation and they're coming into the hospital, I give them antibiotics for COPD exacerbation. Um, again, I'm not giving them augmentin or, you know, um, amoxicillin, clavulanic acid. I'm not giving them levofloxacin. I try to keep it pretty narrow. And when I give them azithromycin, again, I'm giving them COPD exacerbation, not community-acquired pneumonia. So, um, you know. And that's interesting that you say that because I know that uh, for us, uh, typically, like overnight or what have you, we admit these COPD exacerbations and they're almost invariably placed on levofloxacin. Yeah, that's broad for me for just... So for COPD exacerbation, levofloxacin is too broad. Um, Levofloxacin, I consider, again, so people with COPD can be co-infected with pseudomonas, and the COPD patients that I've made worlds better are the ones where I cultured pseudomonas, gave them a course of levofloxacin, and their sputum went away. They still have their emphysema, and they still have COPD, but they're not having frequent exacerbations, and they're not having a chronic productive cough. So I would look for that in order to to consider levofloxacin. Um, Levofloxacin is not unreasonable for community-acquired pneumonia, but I wouldn't give it for clear x-ray COPD exacerbation. That would not be my drug of choice. I'm I'm wondering, and this is something I saw more during residency, and maybe it's fallen out of favor. But it, what are your thoughts on sort of nebulized inhaled uh, corticosteroids? So I, I've seen like you know these patients are getting just blasted with IV steroids, and then they actually add on like maybe an inhaled or nebulized budesonide on top of that when their receptors <laughs> are probably already saturated. Is there a role for that? Am I being cynical, or is that? No, I think you're right. So um, I think the reality is if you're getting IV steroids or even, you know, PO40 of prednisone, um, you're getting a lot more um, uh, than the NEBs are going to necessarily be able to provide. Um, So if you're, you know, uh, and then you have the added question of uh, rinsing out their mouth and not getting thrush and and all of that. So, um, you know, I think when we end up seeing patients in the ICU, they'll be on albuterol or protropium nebs and, you know, IV or PO steroids and, and um, maybe antibiotics for COPD exacerbation. And we won't generally give them nebulized um, 
uh, steroids. Uh, but you know, but I might, if they're not in the ICU, I would probably continue their outpatient inhaler. Gotcha. So, um, and there are people, and sometimes it's for cost reasons, right? That somehow the nebs are covered differently than inhalers and people are on nebs chronically. And so that might be a reason to continue that to sort of reinforce the idea that this is a therapy for COPD and you should keep on it even in an acute exacerbation. But I agree, it's probably of marginal benefit. Gotcha. We should clarify for the audience the duration of antibiotics and the duration of steroids for exacerbation. I think a lot of people just yeah. get in, in training, they just kind of do whatever their attendings tell them to, and every attending tells them something different. And then if you look up different sources, there's different recommendations. So I think the most standard uh prednisone course or steroid course for an acute exacerbation of COPD is five days of prednisone, 40 milligrams daily. Um, and that came out of a study actually it was done in emergency departments in Switzerland a number of years ago where they had patients come to the emergency department with an acute COPD exacerbation. They were randomized to prednisone 40 for five days versus 14 days. Um, and actually 14 days of prednisone 40, no taper. Um, and there was no significant improvement with the longer steroids. Um, and um, I can't remember if they were able to capture any specific negative effects, but the net um, effect of that was that that would be considered standard therapy as five days of 40 of prednisone. That being said, I'm sure we've all seen patients that are really quite severe, um, right? So the patient who is in the ICU with severe uh, COPD exacerbation or who has their influenza triggering their COPD exacerbation. Um, so I think there's a lot of clinical judgment in uh, symptom severity where you might keep them on for longer and taper. And the key for people that are super sick and require steroids, I think, is tapering. So there are studies looking at chronic prednisone for COPD, and it does not reduce exacerbation frequency. So people feel fabulous on it for at least a short while, uh, but chronic prednisone does not reduce exacerbation. So even if you decide that you want to do a two-week taper instead of a five-day burst, or you know, even if you do a three-week taper, fine, but taper, I think, is the key. And if you're unable to taper, then I think that's someone that raises a red flag and do they need a CT or, you know, a sputum culture or some other uh, evaluation for why you're having so much trouble getting off the steroids. Some insurances seem to want you to get, to prove the patient was sick enough to be in the hospital with IV steroids, sure. which is always something oh, really? that just, I mean, if the patient can t tolerate PO, is there really a difference like IV versus PO? Uh, do, do you use IV? Like if you're, you get what I'm saying? Like they, yeah, I, I just yeah. find it kind of, the residents ask me like, is it okay to change them to PO today? I'm like, well, yes. if we're giving equivalent doses. I don't know that it matters, but does, yeah. is there any evidence one way or the other? Um, no, I think the absorption is faster. I, so if someone's hitting the ED, I think the first steroid dose they're going to get is IV. Okay. But if they're on the floor and swallowing pills, right? So aspiration and dysphagia would be other things that you might mm -hmm. evaluate in someone with COPD. But if they're not too short of breath to swallow pills and they're not choking on them, then I agree. Put them on the pills. All right. Gentlemen, other questions we have about uh, acute exacerbations here? So sure, I'll ask a question. You mentioned um, kind of uh, briefly BiPAP, um, mm -hmm. which is a treatment that, you know, we're probably familiar with use, use often. Uh, what, what is it that you see in a patient that makes you think that they would benefit from BiPAP? 
So the criteria are pretty specific. So um, in order to, to benefit from non-invasive positive pressure ventilation at home, um, you have to be chronically hypercapnic. So chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure, pretty significant. So PCO2 of 52 or greater, not during the acute exacerbation. So the patient who came into the hospital uh, and you know their ED ABG was a PCO2 of 70, that's not the person that, that gets uh, non-invasive ventilation at home. It's they're back and they're better. And they're now seeing you having recovered from the acute exacerbation and they live with a PCO2 of 53. That's the person that would mm -hmm. benefit. Um, and that's not a trivial therapy either, actually. So this was developed in, in Europe and they have comparisons of high versus low um, settings in terms of how much PCO2 are you blowing off. And it's really the high pressures blowing off the PCO2 that make the difference. Uh, and the way that they titrate that in, in, in Europe is that people get admitted and you adjust their settings until you have the targets. And that's not feasible in our healthcare system. Um, so I think they're doing trials of how to initiate that at home. But that is, again, a small subset of patients that you would consider for that. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the big things that's come in COPD in the last few years is sort of this recognition of comorbidities as part of what influences. So part of the falling away of spirometry as being at the center of how we stage and diagnose COPD has come with a realization that you might have spirometry that's mildly abnormal, but if you also have diastolic dysfunction and renal failure and morbid obesity and severe sleep apnea and pulmonary hypertension, that person comes in and out of the hospital all the time. And the ability of a single inhaler to affect that is pretty minimal, right? Um, and so I think there's an increased recognition that really when you're looking at these people that are frequent exacerbators or having a lot of symptoms, you have to assess everything else that's contributing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a little bit of furosemide and a little bit of dysphagia management and some CPAP or BiPAP for their apnea, um, you know, those might be things that, that do as much good as the $300 mm -hmm. a month inhaler that gives them no, I think that's really important because I think we oftentimes start thinking of things in, in silos and in reality, all of this stuff is interconnected. Cyrus, you were kind of, I think with your question about the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, you wanted to know like which patients coming into the hospital, how do you select there, who you're going to put on, uh, who you're going to put on BiPAP in the emergency department. Is that right, Cyrus? Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely oh. Oh, sorry. I totally misunderstood your question. No, but I but think, the other information is actually really useful. Yes. I was actually, I was glad you took it that way because, yeah. uh, you know, we're more, we're more geared towards the outpatient anyway. So that is, this is useful. And uh, so if you could tell us, like, if we're seeing patients in the ER, which, which ones do you, when do you start to think to reach for BiPAP? Um, so BiPAP and intubation is a clinical decision, right? So if someone is working really hard to breathe and they look like they're in respiratory failure, I don't care what their SATs say or what their ABG shows, that is a clinical decision because it looks like they're going to crash. So I think you look at someone that's struggling and not effectively ventilating, you can put them on BiPAP. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in the ED, I think the stakes are not that high because you could always give them BiPAP, see how they do and wean it off. Um, so you don't have to feel like, oh gosh, I'm going to definitely send them to the ICU if I try BiPAP for a little bit. But mm -hmm. if you try BiPAP and they do much better, um, then that can be a big help. 
The other things that are helpful are getting an ABG so that you know, you know, is there PC to 100 um, or is it 45? You know, sort of where are we on that spectrum? Uh, but again, the ABG doesn't trump your clinical um, decision making. And BiPAP, so again, like fluid overload and, and all of that, BiPAP will help. Um, chronic heart failure and COPD. So even if their PCO2 is not that high, but they're working hard to breathe and you put on BiPAP, you might actually be helping their heart right. failure. And that might be part of why they're improving. Okay. Well, I think I think we've done a nice job of covering like a really wide range of topics here. So this will be the lightning round. Paul and Cyrus, any other favorite questions or things that were on your list that you wanted to ask Denitza before we let her go? I'll start with one. It's not mine, but it's one that I've seen several times here on social media, um, specifically about repeating pulmonary function tests and how often you should be doing that. Uh, I think it depends on who owns your PFT lab. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, if you have the diagnosis and they're clinically stable, I really, you know, some people will be like, oh, they need annual PFTs. And like, do they, I, you know, what am I titrating here? I like your style. (laughs) I'm not, you know, I don't think Less so. Less is more. Um, if, if I have someone that had, you know, a huge bronchodilator response last time and I've started them on an inhaler and I want to see, am I as good as I could be, then I might repeat it and assess therapy. But as a general rule of thumb, I think it certainly does not have to be every year. Uh, and when and how often I would say clinical judgment. So think about the information that that you need from that test before you order it, and don't worry about the whatever box you have to check for your EMR or your institution. I, I like that. They, I worked at a place that forced us to get PFTs every two years for patients, regardless of whether or not we thought it was going to affect. You know, it was just one of their kind of quality measures, I guess. Yeah. Anyway. Well. That's a digression. I think that's probably going away as everyone is more worried about cost of care. Yeah. Uh, and those are not getting reimbursed individually. Yeah. Um, so, Paul, any any last questions? Yeah, I got two lab ones that are almost more for me than for our audience, which is <laughs> why I do the show anyway. But I guess so for acute exacerbations, I've heard it advocated just to almost always be thinking PE. So I, just because I think there was a case series oh, that showed it happened 20% yeah. of the time that it precipitated COPD exacerbation. So that was the more acute exacerbation. How aggressive are you about that? And what, what, kind of, what does that workup look like? Uh, if your ED is like our ED, then they get the PE workup before they <laughs> <my> ICU. <laughs> uh, that's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, the, the studies are there that it's associated and um, – and even without, you know, so uh, like we try in order to sort of assess that, we try to use objective criteria. So we'll use the Wells criteria or, um, but, you know, like they'll have tachycardia. They won't have calf tenderness. Um, do you have an alternative diagnosis? Yes, that's their COPD exacerbation. So I think the reality is tricky. And even a D-dimer is not super helpful because it's probably going to be high. Um, right. So I think you try to think through a pretest probability. Um yeah, about yeah to start I, I think that's forward. a challenging question. Yeah, I think that's a challenging question. And I think, um, yeah, the, there are studies <laughs> showing the association. It's like the bane of everyone's existence is PEs. Sure. Yeah. And then I guess from the initial workup, um, sorry, really, I promise it's my last one. But in terms of, I also see sort of like a, a knee-jerk boilerplate uh, set of labs that often will include like an alpha-1 antitrypsin level. And, okay. and I've heard that it's actually far more prevalent than I think that it is. And maybe that's one of the justifications. I wonder if you could sort of speak to that as part of your initial workup too. 
Okay, so it is recommended in the guidelines uh, sure. to evaluate people with emphysema for alpha-1. It is more prevalent than you think. Um, the data on who gets, right, so the purpose of identifying it is, so one purpose would be to say, hey, you have alpha-1, then maybe that gives me reason to test or counsel your relatives who might be 20 years old and smoking and not realizing. So if you're doing it for that, um, great. If you have a 95-year-old and you're checking alpha-1, you're not doing a thing <laughs> for that patient, right? Like, right. Um, and then the data on alpha-1 replacement for that specific patient is really um so if they have normal PFTs, there's no data that starting it early helps. If they have very severe obstruction, there's no data that starting that helps. So you're looking for this middle ground of PFTs. Um, and then there's also, um, you know, sometimes people will start um, replacement therapy if you have progression in PFTs. So this subset would be people you would get PFTs in at least annually and look for loss of lung function, and that might trigger you to give alpha-1. Um so guidelines say check it in everybody. It is more prevalent than you realize. I would say most people are not checking it in everyone. Certainly, if you have a non-smoker and you see emphysema, you should check it. But, um, you know, we're also getting a ton of people now. I don't know if it's a ton, but plenty of people who went on 23andMe or some of the other um, sort 100%. of commercial testing sites and present to the pulmonologist's office with a history of asthma, you know, in their 20s and 30s, um, and they're heterozygotes for alpha-1. And, you know, you want to check their LFTs. And, and kind of follow them with spirometry. No one really quite knows what to do with those people, especially if they have normal PFTs. You sort of follow them and, and see how they do. Um, so the guidelines say you should check it. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> Don't ask me how many patients I've checked it on. <laughs> maybe I will one day. <laughs> <laughs> Denitza, let's get some take-home points so you could go watch the Olympics with your family here. <laughs> Um, so I think one big take home point is for COPD, make sure you have the diagnosis. And I would say the key part of the diagnosis is tobacco history. If people are non-smokers, that's a big red flag for me. Um, and then the confirmatory testing is spirometry. And then when I look at patients, when they have COPD, I'm really trying to figure out what am I trying to improve? Can I improve mortality? Um, so tobacco cessation and oxygen, if they need it, pulmonary rehab, uh, and then the inhalers, as expensive as they are, are just for symptoms and exacerbation frequency. Um, you can do chronic azithromycin or reflubilast for uh, exacerbation frequency as well. I think that's plenty. That's that's great. Killed it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. My pleasure. Let me know when you want to do lung cancer screening. That is <laughs> even more nihilistic about that. <laughs> okay. I like, I, I like that your approach is, I, I like how you give us a lot of answers. Like, yeah, the guidelines say this, like I roll, but it doesn't make sense. So <laughs> just... oh, when you start with a side, that's actually my favorite response. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like you ask what should be a yes or no question and you got like a three page essay of nuance. Perfect. It's perfect. No, I mean, if, if people are listening for yes or no answers, then, you know, yeah. it's just, this is long form. Okay. There's, <laughs> there are, we have, we have, there's other podcasts for, for medicine that are not long form, but we're long form for a reason. So we like to, we like to torture me in the editing room with uh, lis <laughs> listening to, listening to two hours of tape, but I, I love it. So it's great. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Have a guys. great night. Great to see you again. Thanks. Alrighty. Thank you. Have a good one. 
This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Paul, I think you're supposed to uh, fill in with Oh, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Um, (laughs) Yummy, I believe, is what goes here. Uh, Thank you, Paul. I feel so gross right now. (laughs) (laughs) Stuart's not here. That job is essential. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And sign up for our weekly mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food where you'll receive a weekly copy of our wonderfully done show notes. This week done by Leah and Cyrus. And we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at the Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto at Dr. Watto on Twitter. Please follow Paul on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and I remain. And Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, do not follow me on Twitter. You will regret it. <laughs> at and Paul and Williams with a Z at the end. <laughs> Cyrus? And I am Cyrus Askin. It's been a great time. Okay. Leah, you should sign off too, even though you weren't on the episode. <laughs> All right. This is Leah Witt. Dr. Leah Witt. <laughs> Our producer, Dr. Leah Witt. Thank you, Leah. And no Stuart Brigham. Sorry, Stuart. <laughs>